Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. You're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. The deep ocean is the least explored environment on Earth, with many thousands of species that have yet to be encountered. And we depend on tools primarily developed by the military or the oil and gas industry to capture life forms, many fragile and some thousands of years old, and too often we damage or destroy them. A chance encounter led to a collaboration at the Wyss that has developed soft robotic tools that make possible a new, non-invasive approach to our interaction with deep ocean life. One of today's guests, David Gruber, says that prevailing methods of exploration are a bit like going to the Louvre and studying the Mona Lisa with a pair of scissors. You would want to use the most delicate tools one has available to study such a precious piece of artwork. That's the way we see deep marine life. Gruber is a 2017-2018 Radcliffe Fellow, National Geographic Explorer, and Professor of Biology and Environmental Science at Baruch College, CUNY. And I'll be talking with Gruber and with Robert Wood, Charles River Professor of Engineering and Applied Sciences in the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and a founding core faculty member and co-lead Bio-Inspired Soft Robotics at the Wyss. Rob and his work are the subject of a previous episode of Disruptive. And David recalls their initial meeting. We were in Washington, D.C. We were at a meeting at the National Geographic Society where Rob and I were both getting uh, inducted as explorers. And I was showing some of my work from submarines where we're beginning to examine deep sea life. And I was showing a video of this kind of rather um, rudimentary kind of claw very destructive arm. And the, um, me and the submarine driver were trying to pick something up, and, and I thought it was pretty good. But um, <laughs> Rob, Rob came up to me afterwards and was just completely unimpressed um, with this being the, the state of the art for marine biologists. You see, Rob Wood explains, he was observing from a pretty unique perspective. We were working on a, a new class of robotics called soft robotics. And what that entails is attempting to create what we think about as robotic functionality, but using uh, only soft materials, so materials as soft as your skin, for example. So how do you make uh, sensors and actuators? How do you make muscle-like things, but without the use of any rigid materials? And so that was where we, where we were starting from. David again. Rob really started peppering me with engineering questions about the force of the gripper. You know, I'm a biologist, so I, I fielded them as, as best as I could, but the conversation ended with, have you ever heard of soft robotics? And the answer was no. The tools that, that were available to him at the time were such that they were extremely rigid, overpowered, and, and not really conducive to delicate interactions with these uh, very, very fragile systems, organisms, and ecosystems. And so sort of a light bulb went off with the two of us when we started talking. And a few months later, there was an opportunity called an Innovation Challenge Grant for interdisciplinary research among the explorers, we decided to approach deep sea biology using soft robotics. David's original attraction to marine biology was a simple one. How I first got interested in the ocean was a purely physical, I like surfing. I like being in the ocean, I like spending time in the ocean, and I didn't know what to do with my life. So I looked at the list of majors when it came time to go to college, and I, I chose oceanography. 
first I studied physical oceanography because I just wanted to find the better wave breaks. <laughs> and then I studied biological oceanography because I was curious about what was swimming under me. And that incorporates chemical oceanography, physical oceanography, biological oceanography, and the origin of life and the moving of tectonic plates and uh, the climate cycle and the microbes in the ocean. It's a beautiful thing because it's completely interconnected. It, it implies chemistry and physics and biology, and it's this long, ongoing narrative for me. I did my postdoc at the Brown Medical School because medical research is so much more advanced and focused than marine biology. And I like to kind of go between these worlds of, of medical research and, and just questions of deep-sea biology and kind of draw from the, the edge of the wave of where human techniques are in biology and apply them. So now it's about bringing cutting-edge biology to the deep sea. And I think the vision that Rob and I have is even further out. How could we study an animal, encasing it, do learn about its entire genome, 3D print that animal back at the surface, then let the animal go. So we would get more information than if we actually collected and killed the animal. We can get that same information in a really delicate um, manner. I asked David if he can set for us the wider context of human interaction with the deep sea. You know, the ocean is 71% of our planet, and humans having the ability to scuba dive goes back to around the time of Jacques Cousteau, a recreational scuba diver goes down about 30, 40 meters. The technical scuba divers, when they start playing with mixed gas, you can get down to about 100, 150 meters. Sunlight goes down about seven, 800 meters. So there's still a little bit of sunlight down there. The average depth of the oceans are around 4,000 meters, the average depth with you know super deep places like the Marianas Trench being over 11,000 meters. But the deep sea, to me, is really areas below where no sunlight penetrates. And that's usually below seven, 800 meters. Um, there's not a single photon that reaches down there. And think about how many people, like how many human beings have even ventured down to the space. There's not that many. I'd been studying the ocean for many, many years. And my first time I went in a submarine and went down to the bottom of the ocean, I was down at 1,000 meters it was an entirely different world. Everything I thought I knew about the deep sea, I had to reevaluate actually being there, actually seeing the animals, actually feeling the pace of things. Things are really slow down there. When I was down there, I was looking around and everything swimming by me was an animal that I hadn't seen before and likely nobody'd seen before. In terms of how we study it, marine biologists, we really take from the military and from the oil and gas in terms of the technology. They're really the pioneers of people that have working in the deep sea. When Rob was watching my video using this hard mechanical claw, it was just really, what was the word to describe? What would be the word? Yeah, you know, mangling. Yeah, <laughs> mangling. It was just, you know, it was like using a butcher knife to study this. And some sponges in the deep sea have been dated at 18,000 years old. We want to be able to study them in a, in a delicate way that they could stay there for another few thousand years. We're thinking like, how would a marine biologist work in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years? And how could we start laying the framework for 
delicate marine exploration. Is that a moral choice or does it make for better research or both? Rob? It's both. And so, you know, in terms of the research, uh, first of all, I've been learning a tremendous amount about the biology of some of these organisms. But if you really want to study the organism, then you want to study it in its natural state. And as soon as you start stressing it out, then it's no longer in its natural state. We want these animals intact and happy. And so if, if you're sitting there, you know, slicing them up, then they're not going to be happy and you're not going to get a clear picture of, of what's going on. There certainly is a, a respect, uh, you know, aspect of this that's, you know, we want to get use, an, use us as an example so that, you know, we can sort of provide tools and and guidelines, uh, et cetera, for how we could safely, delicately, gently interact with, with animals that are potentially so old or so rare. I asked David Gruber about two different novel territories he's been exploring in this process, the deep ocean on the one hand and robotic engineering on the other. One of the things I felt when, when I was in that submarine sitting at the bottom of the ocean at, at 1,000 meters you know, at 2 in the morning was just the kind of viscosity of all this water sitting on top of me. Nothing moves very fast down there. It's like almost like life in this jelloey soup. And the temperature is pretty constant. And there's no sunlight. And the only light is bioluminescence. So it just seems like life is at a much slower pace than, than sitting in, in a rainforest or sitting even up in the shallow coral reef. One of the unique opportunities I see in, in working with Rob is that he's such a capable, um, unique engineer that when we work together on these projects, the challenge as well is how to like effectively apply Rob's engineering powers to these problems. Asking him to just kind of make me some simple thing is a little bit like using the space shuttle for a Boston to New York flight. We're basically picking some of the most difficult problems, I think, in, in marine biology and engineering. And even when we started out, we didn't even know if these soft robots would survive the deep sea. We had no idea what would happen to the materials. If we brought some of Rob's silicon, um, you know, his prototypes, we put them on a submarine that was going on and we just attached a GoPro to them just to watch what happened. Like that's how early we were in seeing if this would work. And, and I think when we saw the video, it was quite evident in the first time that, yeah, this does work. And I think it was at that moment that I really saw the potential of moving this research forward. David sees similarities in the nature of the work he and Rob have undertaken together and the very life forms he studies. The power of symbiosis, which is something that we see in the deep sea, which is when two parties or animals come together and they both extract a positive reaction from the interaction. And corals have this algae that live in their skin that the algae do photosynthesis and feed the corals and the corals provide them with a safe home. And I think these analogies of bioinspiration really um, ring true in this collaboration. For you, Rob, I guess it's more that you're taking your capabilities and your intellectual curiosity and shifting it to another field with enormous, pardon the pun, depth, and you're jumping in. How is that for you? It's, I mean, it's tremendously satisfying. We are typically just engineers sitting in our lab and building interesting devices and then you know, eventually sort of bringing them out into the world. 
But in here was a, an opportunity to immediately bring them out into the world in a, in a very, very real and, and literal sense. So it's, it was a win on, for us on every metric that we could imagine. David? I have a remotely operated vehicle that, um, a small one that could go to a thousand meters. And Rob decided to get uh, scuba certified to, to yeah. join this expedition. So he was not only committed um, intellectually and putting the resources of a lab, but also to just show this kind of exploratory spirit of actually getting in the water. We went to the Red Sea on our first expedition and, um, you know, scuba diving with the remotely operated vehicle to check out these, these squishy robot fingers, which were the first, the first invention. He literally dove in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is how much I appreciate this collaboration too, is because uh, I went and got scuba certified in the Boston Harbor in, I think it was early April after one of the coldest winters we'd had in a long time <laughs> in a wetsuit. And that was, uh, that was easily the least fun I've had in this collaboration, I'll say. <laughs> yes, and well out Dedication. of the lab. So, okay, so how did you come up with the Squishy Fingers? The Squishy Fingers started uh, totally unrelated to deep sea biology. Uh, they started off as a, an exploration of can we make soft robots to do things as effectively as rigid robots. And so if, if we take even a step further back, this started um, with the, the simple sort of thought experiment. If I ask you to close your eyes and think about a robot, you know, what is it that you see in your mind? And it's, you know, maybe it's something sci-fi or something you saw in the movies or whatever, but it's probably, if I think, if I ask you to think very practically about what that is and, and maybe, maybe leave the fiction behind, um, it's probably some powerful robot that's welding doors on cars on, a, on an automobile assembly line or something of the like. The robots themselves are extremely successful. They're, they're powerful. They're accurate. They're you know, repeatable. Uh, all of the qualities you'd want to have if you're assembling a car. Uh, but the, the, those things come at a cost, and that is danger, danger to any sort of human operators. And so, so the, the idea of soft robotics sort of grew out of that and related s sort of scenarios where uh, you want humans to be interacting with robots, and, and that could be for many reasons. Maybe the robots are helping you with something or, or helping you around the house or cooking you something or you know, giving you medicine at a hospital, whatever the task might be. If it's human-centric, then they have to be safe. And so how do you make them safe? The classical robotics uh, way to do this is to, to frankly, to over-engineer the system, to have it be you know, all sorts of intelligence and sensors and, and computation power to be able to reason about the environment and, and then make decisions that won't harm humans, okay? We sort of take a step away from that and we say, well, if you make them out of materials which are you know, just like your skin, then they're inherently not going to harm you. Okay. And so then it flips the question to not necessarily now, are these things going to be dangerous? They're not, but are they going to be effective? And so that's where we were at the start of this, where we were able to make um, uh, soft actuators and soft sensors. And, and, and we, we had the sort of core constituent components of what you might think about as a robot. That's about the time that I met David, where we had this simple capabilities. We had the, we had the hammer, but didn't have the nail, right? And so so David provided the nail and provided a whole, not just the nail, but the whole, the whole construction site. You're creating something in the lab, testing it in the water, tinkering with it in the lab, testing it in the water. Am I correct that this one has a sort of a, a rapid practical feedback loop? It does. And, and the impact is, well, it, it's fast on the, on the typical timescale. 
But I think one of the things that David and I are trying to do is really shorten that even further. On a recent expedition uh, where one of our team was out on a boat, um, and so he brought along with him not just the robots, but also 3D printers. And so what, what he was able to do then is take what he saw the day before or even several hours before in, in terms of what they were finding at this particular remote site in the, in the South Pacific and then print, literally prototype over the course of a few hours, new soft robots that were then sort of bolted to the end of the ROV and then sent out, you know, within... 12 hours of, of that initial observation. David chimes in. With Rob's development of these soft robotic arms, it's enabling a vision of setting up a laboratory on the bottom of the ocean where the biologist's hands are moving and using a force feedback glove. And then there's these arms, the soft robotic arms on the outside of the submarine that are doing what the scientist's hands are doing. And they could be putting things in test tubes and beakers, essentially putting arms on the, in, in a deep sea where, where we're not adapted to live. And, and um, it would be pretty fatal if I decided to stick my hands out of the submarine. When I was thinking about it, I was thinking sort of an evolutionary process at work. First, you come up with the squishy fingers. And that, to me, that sort of is the platform. And then you develop a series of advances and adaptations as you see the need for them and the possibility of achieving them. Is that a fair assessment of how this has gone? I don't know if I would describe it as an evolutionary process because evolution to me implies some level of randomness. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully we're more deterministic in the types of decisions mm -hmm. that Good we distinction. make in terms of yeah. our... But, but yes, it's exactly that. And so, you know, as engineers, we see a problem and we identify a solution and we build it and we test it. One of the things that maybe is swept under the rug about engineering a little bit too much is that we often do that and fail. You're going to build a, a device that's hopefully going to be a solution to this problem, uh, but it might not work. But if you think about this correctly and if you plan well, then whether it works or not, you learn something and, and you, you impart that uh, new knowledge as some design feature of the next iteration. Um, and I think that one of the things that underlies that process is the ability to do this iteration cycle fast. And so what that means to us is tools to be able to build things quickly um, and, and have these things not just be simple objects, but be very complex. If you can dream it, we can build it. And so that's where we are in this process, leveraging these types of tools, the, the sort of classical build and test and build and test paradigm for engineering uh, with all these tools at our, at our disposal and with this truly fascinating uh, set of tasks that we're, that we're trying to accomplish. In the earlier disruptive podcast on Rob Wood's work with soft robotics, he explained that two of their greatest challenges are to create actuators and sensors out of soft materials. And I asked him to briefly bring us up to speed. By actuator, I sort of mean this abstract concept of applying mechanical work to something, so moving something, picking something up. At the core of that is an actuator. Typically, what we think about that in an in a engineering context is a motor. In a biological context, you think about it as a muscle. And so that was that was and is a core task of this, this topic of soft robotics is how do we create muscle-like actuators that can do very simple motions, uh, but do them in a muscle-like way. So they're, they're inherently soft, they're relatively efficient, fast to an extent. So they're, they're not gonna blow you away in any one given metric, but in aggregate, they, again, they, we, we target them to aim like muscle. In this context for the deep sea, 
uh, we create hydraulic soft actuators that are basically water balloons. And by virtue of the shape of, of this balloon and by various pieces that we stick within the skin of the balloon, if you design these properly and sort of arrange these pieces within the skin of these balloons, you can get the balloons to deform in very interesting ways, uh, very well-defined ways, uh, when you start to pressurize them internally. And the sensors, what's the challenge there? How do I think about creating something which is going to give me a reliable, repeatable signal upon the application of a stimulus? Um, again, you're going to use entirely soft materials. And so we, have, we do that in a number of ways, um, whether it be through changes in the electrical resistance of a material uh, as it deforms or the optical conductivity uh, uh, properties of a material as it, again, as it deforms. Um, so there's a number of ways to do it, but the trick, uh, again, as with the actuation, comes down to how do you actually construct these things? And how do you do this in a way which is which is not just robust, uh, you know, to the challenges of the deep sea, high high pressures, corrosive environments, cold, but also uh, very fast, very quick to do. We don't, you know, if it takes a month to build them, then that's going to be much far less valuable to us than something that you know takes you know hours. And so the squishy fingers are the first development, and I think people can understand how that works. You're sending out an arm, you're gripping something which is fragile, you're gripping it with these soft squishy fingers, and you can you can manipulate it without damaging it. What leads to the development of the uh, soft robotic wrist? So after we had the squishy fingers, you know, we what we basically did was took David's ROV with its existing arm and we basically cut the hand off of it and put these squishy fingers on. And so that worked out really well, but their their motions are not particularly smooth, they're a little bit jerky. They might not have the the sort of workspace that you might want. And so the first uh, goal in in sort of converting that to a soft wrist or soft arm was to try to get some dexterity. The other thing was we really wanted to extend this gentleness, this concept of gentleness to not just the, the fingers, but to the arm. So we wanted the arm itself to be back drivable. You know, if we, if we bumped into something, you know, if the ROV pilot steered in the wrong direction, we didn't want the, you know, the elbow of this thing taking out a, you know, a 10,000 year old coral. My guess is that there's an aha moment where, wait a minute, we could take this to an entirely new level and then were there obstacles that had to be overcome to allow you to actually implement this vision you had of 3D printing on the fly? This came out of a, an expedition to the Phoenix Islands with the Schmidt Oceanographic Institute, which is um, Eric and Wendy Schmidt's um, ocean conservation organization. And they have this beautiful boat called the Falcor with a very deep rated, I believe, 6,000 meter remotely operated vehicle called Sebastian. And our goal as biologists on this expedition was to study the biology of the deep community in the Phoenix Islands. And we had an extra berth on the boat to, um, to bring an engineer from Rob's lab, Daniel Voigt. And as we were preparing for the trip of just using the squishy robot fingers, Daniel came up with this idea of like, well, I could bring this printer. A 3D printer is like, a, they're a little bit bigger than your standard office printer for printing paper. So he showed me the 3D printer and he said, I could bring this with me and we could pack this up. It's all telepresence. So, you know, I could be, I, I was here at Harvard and I could log onto the boat and um, watching at the bottom of the ocean of what's happening with these, uh, with these 3D grippers. Daniel could go and come up with an engineering idea, design it on the screen, 
3D print it and within a few hours have that new soft robotic finger device back on the submarine and back down underwater to interact with this organism that had not been able to study before. To get back to the Phoenix Islands <laughs> might take five years and another yep. $5 million. Yep. But, but by engineering and doing this quick iteration and the power of turning around a new kind of squishy finger in, in a few hours and getting it right back down while you're on site in this really remote place in the world. Um, so we're able to write a paper just on that, on just on 3D printing soft robots at sea for delicate marine exploration. And when he's uh, coming up with the new version, it's so that it can deal with specific dimensions and properties of some sea animal you've, you've discovered that the old one wasn't quite right for? There was one that I recall, a small sort of slug-like thing that was sitting at the stalk of a, you know, if I, you can envision like a tree-like uh, coral, uh, branching coral. And the hands that we had that we or, or sort of originally brought with us are fairly large, a little bit larger than human hands, let's say, uh, with, you know, three, four, et cetera, number of fingers. Dexterously, they just weren't able to get in and sort of do a delicate, like, you know, a little pinch grasp, if you will, to try mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to try to... Um, you know, get at this very small organism that was sort of enmeshed within this larger organism. And so that was one aha moment, like, well, let's just create a, a version of this that has, uh, you know, only two fingers and then the ability to do a, a delicate, you know, two-fingered pinch grasp. Both David and Rob talk about their collaboration as process and theme-driven, deeply infused with friendship and mutual respect. We're already coming on three years of working together and it's not about a single invention you know this is not just about squishy fingers this is kind of the process of delicate soft robotics to better understand deep sea biology and it's long term and i've gotten so committed to this collaboration that i i came here to harvard for a year and uh, attend weekly lab meetings at it um, rob's uh, micro robotics lab and that's been an incredible learning experience to even understand the, the engineering and the robotic mindset. To me, everything is interesting in the deep sea, but I'm, I'm also trying to understand what are the, the really novel robotics questions that will push the frontiers of robotics forward. You know, just being selfish for what, my, what I and my students get out of this is, is remarkable. I mean, the fact that we have a real-life marine biologist sitting with us and telling us what are the hardest problems uh, is such a luxury that we we don't typically have in any realm of what we do. You know, we have to go usually go seek it out. Hey, you know, go over to uh, to a teaching hospital and what's the what's the biggest challenge with surgery? And and having David here now for this year, we've been spoiled. You folks have used the word uh, or use the word bioinspiration. It, I know it's a theme at the heart of uh, this work and at the heart of the Vs. How do you define bioinspiration and how has it come into play in this work specifically? Bioinspiration is at the core of a lot of what we do. Uh, we can think about it sort of as a, as a shortcut. So if we have a, a particular challenge, a task that we're trying to accomplish, a device that we want to make, a common thing that we do is to look to biology and see has there been a comparable solution that we can learn from. But at that point, I think it's important to separate from mimicry. Uh, you know, we, we don't really get in the business of, of biomimicry necessarily. We do bioinspiration. And what we mean by that is if there is an organism that can accomplish 
something related to what you are trying to accomplish as an engineer, then can we understand how it is doing that? What are the underlying principles? What are the physics? What are the chemistry uh, or whatever? And then try to take that understanding and then use bits and pieces of that in what we then engineer as the synthetic device. Uh, now, it's interesting. In all the uh, episodes I've done, we've never made that distinction before between bioinspiration and biomimicry. So if you would, Rob, how do you think biomimicry is conventionally defined so that that distinction becomes clear? Biomimicry is kind of just the way it sounds. So if I see an organism doing something, you know, a fish that can swim really fast, if I don't really care about the underlying fluid mechanics for or biomechanics or control systems that are operating in this organism, uh, I just want to copy that particular feature, then I just make it something that looks and, and acts exactly like that fish. That's perhaps is fine. It perhaps is even a shortcut to a shortcut in some senses. But, you know, as academics, we, we want to understand the underlying principles at play in, in these organisms and in the synthetic devices that we create. So it's not as satisfying to us to do that. Rob, what is your vision for this work or work that will spin off from this work or work that will be inspired by this work, say, 10, 20, 30 years from now? And I won't speak entirely for David, but I think our visions are, are very well aligned on this. And I think that it's the following. I think that what we want to do, from my perspective, develop the tools that would give David and his colleagues the ability to explore things in unprecedented ways, the ability to not just get deeper, get more delicate, but to be able to handle some of these organisms without hurting them, without bringing them back to the surface even, but getting as clear a picture as to their, their biology, their physiology as possible. We um, had a recent expedition where we tried out a, a new type of sampling device, for example, that is based upon folding polyhedra. And without seeing this, I'm not going to be able to do this justice. Mm -hmm. But it's something where you basically take a flat sheet of, of a foldable material and now fold it in a way that it forms a, a ball effectively and do this around an organism, you know, a free-swimming organism, a jelly uh, or other free-swimming midwater organisms, uh, and then be able to image it, be able to use some of David's techniques to try to understand you know, its genome, to try to uh, understand things like respiration or, or any of the chemical processes associated with life, but then let it go. You know, it's almost like the, uh, it's almost like an alien abduction sort of analogy to, uh, you know, you go down there and you, you, you know, you, you poke and prod, but you don't hurt and then you leave them alone. Maybe they're a little bit puzzled, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, otherwise they're, they're unharmed. But the, the wealth of, of information, the wealth of knowledge that the biologist then has, you know, it, it's sort of mind blowing. And so then the vision that I have then is, is the development of tools which enable such things. David, your vision of the future. Many animals are living on this planet and we've just not bumped into them yet. So by combining the expertise, we could see them for the first time and we could interact in a way, with them in a way that we don't hurt them. And as we move forward, we just want to keep the vision forward thinking. How do we study more? How do we learn about their aging? How do we learn about their physiology? What genes are they making? How are they responding to stress? All these questions are just blank slates right now for us, for biologists. So what sorts of questions will you be asking? How does a deep sea sponge that lives to 18,000 years, what are the mechanisms of aging? Can we study the physiology in the same way 
can we print a jellyfish that we find at 3,000 meters to the same consistency? What kind of sensors could be integrated? Can we take things like from crime scene forensics in terms of DNA swabs to just delicately touch the outside of the jellyfish and, and get its DNA? A lot of these things aren't even new inventions. They're more about piecing together parts of science from different disciplines, but then putting them together with Rob's soft robots and underwaterizing them, which is quite complicated in its own sense of taking something that exists in a medical facility and being able to use that at the bottom of the ocean is, is definitely not trivial. You, you're adapting things which, as you say, might be in a lab, might be in a hospital, and now they've got to deal with the constraints and the threats of being deep in the ocean. Another member of our team is um, Professor Brennan Phillips at the University of Rhode Island Department of Ocean Engineering, and he did his postdoc in Rob's lab. Um, he'd been one of my collaborators beforehand, and he's really integral in helping us think about how to underwaterize thing and how to um, take these devices. Like you know, we're even thinking of like an endoscope that's used in surgery. Can we think about using something like an endoscope? incorporated to these soft robots? You know, that's a question that we're kind of batting around at the moment. This notion of what you're doing now and what, you, what, what I think is a direction that you're moving in, which is the harmless abduction, but it's how do you get the information that you're getting before you release mm, the, 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 the life form? Yeah, yeah. So the future vision is, again, to study these life forms without harming them. And one way we, we can do that is, Rob mentioned this origami-inspired, um, we call it a rotary-actuated dodecahedron, um, the rad sampler. And it starts out like a flat sheet of paper, and then when it's actuated, it encloses an animal and will encase it. So once we have the jellyfish encased, we could then take out other inventions that Rob's been working on that almost like tickle the animal. And when it tickles it, it'll get information on the softness of the animal, the consistency. And when it touches it, it could also do a DNA swab and get the DNA and allow us to get the genome. Once we've abducted this jellyfish, we have it in this small device for, for a few moments. And it's that point that we would touch it or swab it and get this information and then release it. David appreciates the work he's been doing with Rob in the larger context of marine biology and our relationship with nature and the planet. In my field as a, as, as a marine biologist, as an oceanographer, it's a bit difficult for us right now. And, and it's something that we all think about a lot in that the ocean is undergoing quite a bit of change um, in the last hundred years. And we've been documenting and studying this change. And I'd spent over a decade studying coral reefs. And the areas that we study are rapidly disappearing and changing. And it's evident on timescales of humans of you go back to a site that you studied 10 years ago and it's just dramatically um, degraded. And it's one thing to just be studying objectively as a scientist, but then to witness the, the subject of my study disappear and see it under threat, it's hurtful. 
Rob and I have been even pondering, well, how, how can soft robots be used by people? How can we imagine a future of robots that actually build empathy and isn't necessarily a future dystopian novel of robots taking over? Um, the idea of can soft robots be used to help us connect to nature? And can they be used in ways that they will bring people together? I think there's a lot of feeling now that technology is drawing us apart from nature and drawing us apart from each other. We, we look at our iPhones, we bump into each other in the street without lifting our heads up. But this forward vision of imagining a future where technology goes the other direction and gets us closer. And I think one of the visions is that soft robots here in the deep undersea environment is a way to both be gentler and both get to know these creatures better. Rob, you're an engineer. This is marine biology. Was there previous interest on your part? Did this tap into something, some questions you were already thinking about or some things that inspired you? I don't know how you can be a human and not be fascinated by the ocean. Uh, so I think that there's like an inherent, um, you know, not to get too, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway or whatever, but the, <laughs> the, I think there's some inherent thing about our biology, which is curious about the unknown in particular about the, our sort of neighboring unknown, which is, you know, ocean and deep ocean in particular. So yeah, I mean, there's some innate curiosity, but I, you know, I grew up in the middle of, uh, in the middle of New York where, you know, the, the ocean was five or six hours away. It was, you know, it was something that was sort of alien to me, you know, as a kid, although, of course, you know, watching documentaries, et cetera, sort of stirs it up a little bit. And he's thinking about the impact of his work on young kids today. These things that we're doing, and I can't think of a better example in the work in my lab than the collaboration with David, are fascinating to kids. I don't want to do, I don't want to badmouth any, any other field, uh, any other STEM field, but what, how are you going to get a kid more excited about joining STEM fields than saying, oh, what did you do today? Oh, well, I, you know, made a soft robot that, you know, my biologist collaborator and I are going to send to the bottom of the ocean to try to find organisms that nobody's ever seen before. <laughs> like, uh, you know. We're going to alien abduct a jellyfish. Um, yeah, yeah. These these things we almost, you know, it's hard not to almost um, anthropomorphize this this idea of the future marine biologist just encasing this jellyfish, studying its whole genome, and then letting it go, and and just sort of imagining that conversation that that jellyfish would have to its jellyfish friend about what just happened to it. Finally, I ask Rob how being at the Vis influenced or enabled this collaboration. Being at the Vis allows us not just the the sort of academic freedom to explore topics of interest, but uh, the resources to do this. I mean, some of the initial squishy finger work was done by uh, Dr. Kevin Galloway, who is uh, a researcher at the Revis Institutes, who, you know, we wouldn't, we, we certainly wouldn't have been as successful early on without his help and his innovations in this area. There are so many talented people at the Revis who are dying for real-world problems to really sink their teeth into you know, I can't imagine trying to do that or, or at least do that at this sort of quick pace as we've been doing it without the Vis Institute. Okay. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Terrence. I appreciate it. And David, how has working at the Vis influenced your work? Just what is that like for you? 
how has working at the VEAS influenced my work intensely? I mean, these, the people that I've met at the VEAS, they, they come with their, their game face on, you know, <laughs> and, and these, are, these are really serious researchers. And they approach this in one of the most professional ways I've seen scientists work. But I'm also impressed with like the 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 fact that they're based on bioinspiration. There are people at the VEAS that know an incredible amount of deep sea biology. Even you know, I'm not the only marine biologist there. There is uh, James Weaver who who works there as well, who who has an incredible amount of knowledge of deep sea organisms. So they reach out to other people. You know, like they go into operating rooms. They're constantly kind of like looking at other fields and seeing where there's a need. So so I think working with them has been inspiring just to see how they they go about problems and how they they approach bioinspiration. Sitting there and working with them um, has changed me as a biologist and it's really it's it's instilled with me a great sense of respect for what does it mean to be an engineer at the VIS and how they how they approach problems and how fearless they are in some sense i think the one other thing at the at the core of this is really just the the friendship you know beyond the science beyond all these cool projects i uh, i really enjoy um working with rob and um and learning new things so i think um you know at the base of this it's just been a um it's been an interesting wave to ride Thank you very much, David. It's been really, really a pleasure. Thank you, Terrence. Hope hope you have a good day. You've been listening to Disruptive Soft Robotics for Deep Sea Exploration. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Robert Wood and David Gruber. And you can learn more about their work as well as a broad and exciting range of other projects at the VIS website, vis.harvard.edu. That's W-Y-S-S where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. In fact, as I mentioned, Rob Wood has been featured in another episode of Disruptive. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the V site or on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll of the VEAS Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production. And to you, our listeners, please share this podcast widely, and I look forward to being with you again soon. <music>